Well, everybody, uh, I tell you what, um, Chuck's out of town. He was at a wedding up in Chicago for his family this week, so I knew I'd be on my own this morning, and I needed to get to bed uh, early last night. And luckily, my, my home team, the Houston Astros, they were playing their game three at three o'clock, so I thought for sure I'm going to be able to go to bed early. And then the game goes to the 18th inning. And I watched that game over six and a half hours yesterday. And then by the time it's finally over, walk off, home run, and, and everything, then it's like I, I can't, they, they're not showing any of the replays because now the Yankees game is about to end. And I'm like, I guess I got to watch that one. And so what, what turned into what I thought was going to be a super easy Saturday, I, I'll tell you what, you're... Your pastor was a bit of a mess last night, and it was crazy. So uh, this is going to be super short this morning, <laughs> which, which when a preacher tells you that, it's always a lie. <laughs> you know it's a lie. You know, the series coming up is, is really special, and, and I really want to get into today. I think, you know, finishing off investigating Jesus this week is really important, but next week and, and that whole three-week series, This Is Our Story, is really special to us here at Messiah. Because there's been anniversaries in the past, but, but this one, our 35th anniversary, capped all off with a block party on Reformation Sunday on October 30th. Our, our staff is so excited. Our leaders are so excited because we have so much to celebrate, so much to celebrate. And beginning next week, I can tell you what, uh, Greg's been planning music. It is going to be off the handle. It's going to be so amazing. You're going to want to be a part of it. You're going to want to be here live if you can. And if you can't, I understand, watch online. But, but this whole series is about the story of Messiah and the story that God keeps writing about Messiah and how we as Christian people in the world right now, how we can continue to go forward. So, so be a part of that in this next series. Uh, and, and definitely come and be a part of the block party. But today, like I said, we're wrapping up investigating Jesus, how we know, and why we follow. And that subtitle, to me, is so important because we're asking the question, how do we know there's anything to the story of Jesus? But we're also asking a more fundamental and more important personal question, why would I choose to follow him, to live the way he tells me to live? Why would anybody in the 21st century commit their lives to a first century Rabbi, how do we know there's anything to it? And if you've been along with us for this journey over these six weeks, we're exploring a first century document, a letter called the Gospel of Luke. Luke's writing to a rich, important person, a letter to him just documenting everything that Jesus does, giving him the biography of Jesus. And Luke essentially says, I'm documenting events that happened in my lifetime, Something that actually happened. And the key for Luke is what happens at the end. Because if the story doesn't end the way the story ends, it's not worth telling. It's really not that important. I mean, Jesus said some important stuff and some important things happened. But it doesn't really matter then. And it especially wouldn't matter now. Because Jesus would just be another wannabe prophet. But something happened that made him take notice, and this is what Luke found out. And I want to jump to a passage we often just read at Good Friday, but I think it's important. I just want to read one verse to start. It's in Luke 23, and Luke says this, 
when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. So the place where they loved to crucify people, to put on an example for the world, and on an example for the Roman people, they called that place the skull. And if you go there and you look at the side of a mountain, there is a place that actually looks like a skull, and that's where we can partially assume maybe that's exactly where it happened because it's super creepy. It's so interesting that none of the gospel writers give us any details about the crucifixion of Jesus. They give us details getting up to it, but they don't tell us how long the spikes were that were nailed into his wrists. They don't give us any details about all of this or how many they used or how much blood it seemed like he lost. And the reason there's no, there's no details from the first century is because no details were needed. Everybody had seen one. Everybody had seen a few. Everybody had had to cover their children's eyes when one was happening or, or, or turn the other way and take their children away. We think crucifixion was created by the Persians. And then the Greeks improved on it, but the Romans perfected it. It was a way to keep a man a person alive as long as possible so that you could torture them as long as possible. This was not a punishment. It was also a deterrent. It was meant to scare anybody off. Don't you stand up against Rome. And Jesus, right after this verse, the very next verse, Jesus says the most remarkable and unsettling thing in fact, what comes next, and what comes next is actually the end to which Jesus invites all of us to follow. And I would imagine, I don't know, but, but I would imagine that when Luke heard this from the other disciples, when he was told, you need to write this part down, um, I would imagine that Luke was like, are, are, did he really say that? Because Luke knew Peter and James and John, and Luke knew Mary, Jesus' mother. I could just imagine when he, when he heard, yeah, Jesus said this. Looks like, you got to be kidding me. But Mary would say, no, 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 I know exactly what, I, what he said because I was there. And John would say, I knew exactly what he said. I was there. And it was so shocking, but it's what he said. What did he say when they crucified him? Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing, which is a remarkable thing to say. Here in the 21st century, we would say, that's so passive. That's silly. You lost. Your enemies won. And, and worse than that, when they came to arrest you, you didn't even resist. The disciples tried to resist, and you told them, put their swords down. That's weak. You have to stand up against evil, we would say. And when his followers realized that Jesus wasn't going to resist, they unfollowed him. They ran away. But they shouldn't have been surprised, I don't think. 
Because his response to his arrest is the way he responded to everything in his entire life. This is consistent Jesus. It's why Jesus, I think, had so many admirers and so few followers. I hope you heard what I just said. Because the question I think we have to ask ourselves, am I just an admirer of Jesus? Or am I really following Jesus? Because if you investigate Jesus, and if everything that Luke said that Jesus said and that Jesus did is true, we wouldn't dare just be admiring Jesus. We would want to follow him the best we can. We might be running to catch up, but it's like, I want to be like that. I, I want to impact the world the way that he did. If everything that Luke said that Jesus did is true, it should be game over. Because that's, that's the question his crucifixion is asking. Do you admire him or are you willing to follow him? Because when you see a man or a woman react in such a way that reflects the posture of Jesus, it's, well, it's jaw-dropping. It's show-stopping. Uh, their, their reaction, when they're acting like Jesus, it just cuts through the darkness of life. It stirs something up in us. It doesn't look weak at all. I say this because right now, world leaders are flexing their muscles or their pretend muscles. And the words nuclear strike are actually being uttered right now, which is so nuts. It's so nuts. North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un is testing weapons all the times, all the time. By the way, did you know his haircut is the most famous haircut in North Korea? They actually named it. His haircut has a name. I'm being serious. Do you want to know what it's called? It's called Ambitious. <laughs> I know. So good. Which weirdly gives me hope that all of this is just a bad dream. <laughs> Naming his haircut. Uh, you know, his dad, the, the former supreme leader, Kim Jong-un-il, he was equally dangerous, but apparently on the golf course, the best score for one round of golf in a PGA tournament is 58. Yet a golf pro in North Korea says the first time the supreme leader picked up a golf club, he shot a 34 with five holes in one. You'll see other reports that it was eight holes in one or 11. But he, what he actually quoted was five holes in one, a five-foot-three stud in a gray jumpsuit. The Bible is illegal in North Korea, which should make you want to read it, friends. If, if that's the kind of thing they want to ban, it makes me want to open it up. I don't know if you've heard the name of Stanislav Petrov. He was a lieutenant colonel in the Soviet Air Defense Forces. In 1983, three weeks after the Soviet military shot down Korean Airlines Flight 007. I know this because I was actually at an Air Force base on a mission trip, and I met some people in the 90s who were there when that Korean airliner was shot down. 
They gave me details. They couldn't talk about it for like over a decade. They gave me details about the whole experience, how they knew nuclear war was about to happen. Uh, Petrov, he was the duty officer that at, the, at this command center where the warning system reported that missiles had been launched from the United States. Six total missiles. So they shot down the airliner, and then his defense system warned that we had sent six missiles from the United States. And he had to decide if he was going to report this or not, and he ended up reporting officially it was a false alarm. He wasn't sure. But his subsequent decision to disobey orders is credited with having prevented an erroneous retaliatory nuclear attack on the United States and its NATO allies. And you know what would have happened if that had happened. An investigation later confirmed that the Soviet satellite warning system malfunctioned. And that Petrov and his hesitancy to report it maybe prevented a large-scale nuclear war that could have wiped out, they say, half the population of the world. Or look up the story of Anthony Thompson. In 2015, Thompson's wife, Myra, and eight of his dear friends were gunned down by a white supremacist after a Bible study at Mother Emanuel AME Church. I remember this. It was 2015. I felt like it was like last year. This is in Charleston. And then 48 hours after his wife and his friends are gunned down, 48 hours after his wife is murdered, he goes to the bond hearing for the guy. Now, Anthony Thompson is a Navy veteran. He's a man's man. And he walks into court, and everybody wonders, what's he going to do? And then he says out loud in court, I forgive you. He forgave his wife's murder. And then he promises, and remember, this part, you look it up. You, you look it up. He promises to pray for the murderer's salvation. You want him to end up where you want your wife to end up. Who does that? Who talks that way? But Luke... And his gospel is like, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly what it's like. That's what it's like to not just admire Christ, but to follow Christ. Just when everyone else is ready to give up on somebody, when it looks like evil has won, Jesus invites us to come and to live life a better way. It's why in Luke chapter 9, Jesus says these surprising words. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross. Take it up daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life, you'll lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. And Luke would say, that's what makes the difference. That's what makes the difference. His followers were difference makers, and they actually did this stuff. And when they did this stuff, it caught on. It's a, it's a daily decision. 
Every single morning, thy kingdom come, Lord. Thy kingdom come. I'm going to live today, daily, every day. I'm going to live that your kingdom has come. I want to live in that kingdom, not this kingdom. And we pray that daily. Because that's what it means to follow Jesus. If you're a believer, do you do that? Do I do that? It's the challenge before us. Or do we fall into the average uh, Christian experience of, all right, Lord, forgive me my sin. Bless my family. Thank you for the food. By the way, if there's a problem, I'll call out to you then. That doesn't change the world. It doesn't make a difference. But if we would follow your faith, your life, my life, it could be so much more, so much more. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he's saying, what good is it to think you're winning in life? Only discover that when the clock ran out, you've been playing the wrong game the whole time. That's what he's saying. You think you're winning, and the clock runs out, and you realize, I've been playing the whole game, the wrong game with my life. What good is that? Jesus isn't just inviting us to a better version of ourselves. Luke says, no, we finally understood he was inviting us to something entirely different. The Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that is no metaphor. It's a whole way of living, and it has eternal consequences. When one of the criminals who was hanging next to Jesus, he was hurling insults at him, and then he, he asked Jesus, if you're a king, why don't you save yourself? Jump off the cross, and while you're at it, help me get down too. He's just insulting Jesus. But if Jesus had taken that advice, if Jesus had saved himself, if Jesus jumped off the cross, he would have forfeited his ability, his opportunity to save you. To save us. You know, taking that opportunity to do a right thing, save him. He was innocent. He would have forfeited his opportunity to save the world. But Jesus was playing a different game. He didn't want to win that day. He wasn't trying to beat Rome. He was going for the jugular. Jesus was taking on death itself. I know it looks like Caesar won today, but Caesar's playing the wrong game. By the way, I want to offer just a little history quiz. Uh, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Uh, I feel like we need to take a break. This, is, this has been deep stuff. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if you know this name, okay? Do you know the name of the emperor of Rome at the time Jesus was crucified, his name, would you raise your hand? And, and by the way, his name's not Nero. That, that's later. Uh, his name's not Caesar. That's a title. They were all called Caesar, okay? I saw a couple hands. It's not Caesar Augustus. He was the emperor when Jesus was born. Um, it's kind of interesting. The most powerful man in the world at the time, the most well-known man in the world at the time, the guy who had all the power, and we can't get more than maybe a couple hands, what was even that Caesar's name? Uh, his name was Tiberius Caesar, and he's a 
footnote in the story of Jesus. The most powerful man in the world is a footnote of the crucifixion. The crucifixion of a Galilean day laborer. Are we going to serve the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of God? Is it the kingdom of this world or the kingdom of God? So important. Who's going to be the boss of you? The king of you? Your appetites? Your ambition? Your goals? Because we all have a decision to make. Every single one of us has a decision to make. Are you an admirer? Pretty much everybody on the planet admires Jesus. I mean, even, even people of other religions, uh, because they, they extract certain parts of the message. They like a couple of the stories or, 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 or some of the points or some of the parables. I mean, uh, but for Luke, admiring isn't an option. This is a daily decision. And the people who choose wisely are the people who change the world. And if I could, if I could just twist the knife just a little bit, isn't there something just a little bit, you know, disingenuous about accepting Jesus' forgiveness but, but not responding to his invitation to follow? You know, it's... I don't want broccoli. I'll have ice cream. That's not, that's, not, that's not on the menu. It's not on the menu. You're like, oh, I don't like that. Looks like you can't do that. You, you don't get to make God in your own image. You don't get to make religion in your own image. This is God's invitation to you. It's a better way to live. And Christians, if I could just say something to all of us Christians for a minute... Why would anyone outside of our faith take our faith seriously if we don't? Because Jesus died the way he lived with his arms wide open. The cross took his breath away. Death took our sin away. And Luke's like, goodness, we haven't even gotten to the best part. Because at this point, we've heard an unbelievable story of sacrifice and bravery, but not the kind of story that you want to follow, not the kind of thing that I would want to follow. At this point in the story, I admire Jesus, so do the disciples. But they're hiding behind a locked door in the upper room. They're sitting around the same table where Jesus served them communion for the first time. They're in the upper room, sitting around the same table where Jesus gave them the Last Supper. My body broken for you. My blood poured out and shed for you. They admired how he taught. They admired how he treated people. Maybe maybe Peter admired his courage when the soldiers came. Maybe because he lost all his courage when he denied Jesus three times. They all admired Jesus, but they could no longer follow him. That's why the door's locked, and they're not going anywhere. Then the women went to the tomb, and they told them that something had happened. But the door stayed locked. Yeah, Peter and John, they ran to the tomb for a moment, but then they came back to the upper room, and they locked the door again. And when Jesus comes to the upper room to see his friends, the door's locked and he can't get in. So Jesus has to do a like Casper the ghost, it's almost Halloween, a Casper the ghost thing 
and he's got to like slip through the door somehow. They're so afraid. He keeps telling them, have peace, have peace. Hey, peace, guys. They're so afraid. But it's not working. And so then he says this. He says, look at my hands. Look at my feet. It's me. It's, it's, it's I myself. It's the real me. Touch me. Touch me. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bone, guys. I'm not a ghost. You can see I have flesh and bones. You can touch it. Because the cross took his breath away. His death took our sins away. But it's his resurrection that took their excuses away. And they can see he's alive. And they can touch him and see he's alive. And just for good measure, Jesus eats a piece of fish in front of them so they can watch him swallow it. So they really know he's alive. And it's this event that changes everything. Because up to this point, the disciples still have a locked door. But they found the courage after that to unlock the door. And then this event, the resurrection, it launched a movement. The followers of Christ who changed the world. Which we get to be a part of and we're invited to be a part of, to follow him as well. So why did Luke write all this? And why did all of you show up today? And why have I committed my life to primarily preaching the word of God? Because something extraordinary happened, and it's good news. And it's for anyone who wants it. And so if the version of Christianity that you're familiar with doesn't sound like good news, then maybe it's the wrong version. And perhaps that judgmental religious person that you met is a lot more like a dictator with a bad haircut and doesn't reflect Jesus at all. White Castle might sell more hamburgers than Annie Guns, but you can tell the difference. You can tell the difference. And I think you